Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast where the hosts have nightmares about bringing men onto the show. This week we have Laura, Hope, and Kristen. What a new coven member! Sadly, no. Kristen is my friend and comrade who has agreed to come on this show this week due to her expertise on the prison industrial complex and her general current event savvy. Kristen is a brilliant PhD student and my dear friend, and we're super pumped to have her on the show. So we'll just start by introducing Kristen. Do you want to explain your background and current research? Cool. Well, thank you both for letting me be an honorary coven member tonight. So as Laura said, I'm a PhD student in American studies. Uh, My brilliance is questionable, but I have small moments. Um, It's not questionable. (laughs) (laughs) So my research is primarily concerned with incarceration and the prison industrial complex. I'm currently working on research looking at zines, literature, newspapers, art, and various other ephemera produced by incarcerated people. So I want to explore how, particularly in academia, scholarship assigns expertise, and how, in order to ensure that scholarship about prisons and incarcerated persons don't replicate hierarchical, oppressive structures inherent in prisons themselves, we need to include work by people behind bars into the dialogue Mm. and as a examples of radical scholarship. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm also really interested in the history of the insidious relationship between private prison corporations and the American Legislative Exchange Council, also known as ALEC. Um, Yeah, they're awful. (laughs) (laughs) And also the expansion of private immigration detention centers. Uh, I don't know if y'all heard, but ICE is asking to open five new immigrant detention centers to be run by private corporations. Some fucked up shit. Also, correction corporations outside of the brick and mortar structure. So like probation companies, private jail companies, particularly the American Bail Coalition, private food services like Aramark, phone companies... I don't know. It's all so gross and fucked. Also, I'm really into film, just like generally. So whenever I can incorporate it into my work or conversation at large, I will. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Fucking badass. <laughs> so a couple of months ago, we had an episode on the hashtag me too phenomenon, and we wanted to follow up on that issue for a couple of reasons. Obviously, the hashtag MeToo issue has not and is not going away. Patriarchal norms are going to take a lot more than a couple of Hollywood takedowns to shift at all. Number two, as people against the carceral state, how do we seek out justice for those affected by this misogynistic behavior? And three, so far this issue has only been addressed in pop culture through the lens of the rich and the famous. What we're working, what I'm curious about is how how working class women and everyday harassment, how can that be combated in the same light? I'm not diminishing what these famous women faced, but we do need tools to be able to support working class and poor women from harassment and assault. Yeah, and I think that as more and more sexual harassment and assault is brought to light, we as a society are having to face how extremely common it is 
which in my opinion, it's probably the most positive thing to come out of the Me Too movement. Um, it just is an undeniably visible way to see how often it occurs and how many people it affects. So once you know that, one of the next questions is, how do you deal with a transgression that's perpetuated by so many people? Right. We can't lock them all up, find them all, make all of them live on an island someplace, right? And <laughs> that would be nice. Um, but if we could, we're not addressing the conditions that support this happening by so many for so long. I also think that as feminists, we have to be aware that those in power and the media will continue to try and paint this as a witch hunt. And we'll also try and highlight how we seem to not care about justice or fairness. Um, and it's like almost like it's kind of hypocritical. So talking uh, visibly talking about ways to seriously hold people accountable and protect those who are vulnerable while respecting our ideals around fairness and compassion seems really important right now. Totally. That's such a good point, because no matter what's going to happen, like, it's going to be twisted against women until some sort of transformative change happens, right. <laughs> which maybe we'll talk about at some point in this episode. Who knows? <clears throat> we wanted to start with some research on the prison industrial complex. And because that's in Kristen's wheelhouse, we thought we'd just let her take that on. Okay. Um, so It's just a really easy task we asked <laughs> yeah, you to do. Just yeah. like explain the whole prison <laughs> industrial complex. It's totally fine. <laughs> So I guess just going over like generally what we mean when we're talking about the prison industrial complex, I'm going to quote from the organization Critical Resistance here because I think that they offer like a really succinct definition. So we're referring to the overlapping interests of government and industry that use surveillance, policing, and imprisonment as solutions to economic, social, and political problems. So this increase in incarceration and harsher penalties, mandatory minimums, three-strike policies, etc., they come regardless of crime rates. And I think, as we're all aware, this disproportionately affects communities of color. Uh, According to the NAACP, African Americans are incarcerated more than five times Mm. the rates of whites, and indigenous persons as well as Hispanic, uh, Latinx, Chicanx persons are also overrepresented at egregious rates in U.S. prisons. Mm. Um, I also just wanted to kind of go over some raw numbers real quick because it's always just so staggering and gross. Um, But... So the U.S. imprisons more than 2.3 million people. That's across 1,719 state prisons, 102 federal prisons, 901 juvenile correctional facilities. Like, just like the fucking juvenile. That's so fucked up. Okay, sorry. No, it's, it's awful. 3,163 local jails and then 76 other facilities. The majority of these are immigrant detention centers and territorial prisons. Um, So these numbers come from the Prison Policy Initiative, and I uh, checked them against Bureau of Justice statistics in case anyone wanted to know. Kristen did her research. (laughs) (laughs) So also, uh, these 2.3 million adults and children who are locked up in cages doesn't include the full number of people who are under correctional control in the U.S. Mm -hmm. because we have to remember that we have probation and parole. Mm -hmm. So all in all, the number of people who are under control of the U.S. justice system, it numbers around 
seven million. That's some fucked up shit. Yeah. I also just want to plug Miriam Kaba. I don't know if y'all have heard of her. Uh, her her Twitter handle, I think it's called, yes. <laughs> it's called a handle. Is, we are Twitty, Twitter happy on this podcast. Cool. Um, I'm very bad at it. But it is at, at Prison Culture, if you want to check her out. Uh, she's a brilliant activist, organizer, writer, an expert on prison abolition and transformative justice. Uh, she's the founder of Project Nia and just an amazing badass. Uh, and everyone should follow her on Twitter and defer to her expertise generally. Yes. Also, I think we should clarify the difference, differences between restorative and transformative justice, since we're going to be talking about that a little. Um, and I'm getting my understanding both from reading information put out by Insight and Generation 5. So my understanding is one of the main differences of restorative and transformative justice is participation in the system. Mm. So, like, restorative uh, may use the existing framework of the criminal justice system, whereas transformative works completely outside these pre-existing structures. I think just semantically also, transformative justice questions this idea that there ever existed a justice to restore, you know? Mm -hmm. Totally. And I think both are important, especially restorative justice with an eye towards abolition is a great thing. But I also think I'm a bit more team transformative. Team transformative. <laughs> um, I'm happy to talk a little bit more about transformative justice, but could you give a little more information about restorative justice just for our listeners who may not be that familiar with it? Yeah, so I think when we think of restorative justice, often what I think of is people who are victims of a crime will speak to and have a say in what happens to the perpetrators of that crime. Mm. And often this will be mediated by court systems. Not always, but I think that very often, and maybe the criminal justice system has kind of like taken over um, this idea of restorative justice. But it's generally that, and it's putting more of an idea, more of like a responsibility and communication between victim and perpetrator. Cool. I actually just really learned about transformative justice in preparing for this episode. And I talked to some friends of mine who are involved in this arena to learn more about it. And a good friend of mine, hi, Allison, passed along an interview in Color Lines with Mia Mingus, who is a social justice activist with the Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective. And we'd also like to say, please come on season of The Bitch, Mia. Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, she seems really fascinating and just really engaged with these issues. But in the article, in the interview, she defines transformative justice as a political framework that asks, how do we respond to harm without creating more harm? How do we respond to violence, harm, and abuse without relying on state systems? The police, the criminal legal system, immigration and customs enforcement, prisons, the foster care system. And also, at the same time, we want to actively cultivate the things we know prevent violence, things like safety, accountability, healing, justice, connection, and transparency. Yeah, I, th I when I was reading through y'all's thoughts on this earlier, it made me think about when I went to the leadership training, the Ella Baker and Lucy Parsons leadership training in New York City that was put on by the Democratic Socialists, and I... They, they talk about the way we organize and the way we want to be leaders is to create transformative change. And they kind of broke down what their thoughts of transformative change is. And for them, it's 
creating real change that shifts the status quo for the majority of people. So if there was universal health care, that would obviously be a transformative change in the United States. And I was just thinking a lot about like how we need to kind of think about things in those terms, particularly when I feel like we can have no longer faith in the system, particularly when our government is literally a bunch of clowns and a shit show on a daily basis. And there's no hope or I don't know I I guess like I feel like we have to think about these things in terms of transformative justice Mm -hmm. because like we know that the system is so flawed on all levels that like how can we possibly work within it right Right. and I mean our country like was built on sexual violence right it was like built on the rape of indigenous women Mm -hmm. um and so, like, to think that we can work within that framework, I think, is next to impossible. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can transform it, for sure. <laughs> but, um. <laughs> okay, so we are going to take our music break a little early, and our musical guest this week is a band called Hop Hop, which is a local Buffalo project run by this incredible local woman named Jazz. So here is Hop Hop with The Girls. Devereaux, Nyland, Patrillo, Snacks, Weed, in my bed, Marathon, here we go. Spornas, Devereaux, Nyland, Nyland, Patrillo, Snacks, Weed, Smoking Weed, in my bed, Marathon. Sophie at the stove stirring her famous tomato sauce. She the boss, beat the brains, rose the heart, and blanched the confidants. Together they make the star of my heart. I loved you, ladies, from the very start. Season one and two will never be apart. Season three and four, I want some more. Four and five never come outside. Wrapped in the blanket of my four mommies. Pussy cat, rosy mom, making salami and blanche eating. Salami taking me non stop. Be rocking geriatrics harder than Strummerack the Cosby show. On collapse, I take my lessons from the gals on the lanai, staring at the sky, holding out for relapse. 30 episodes in rapid succession. Hop Hop is feeling relaxed, cause I'm feeling low. Slow, don't wanna go. Staying home with my girl, spinning curl. I'm hanging out with my best friends, my golden girls. Feeling low, body slow, don't wanna go. Staying home with my girl, spinning curl. I'm hanging out with my best friends, the golden girls. So we wanted to talk about the ways in which we can create justice for women and victims of sexual violence among the working class and how that will and can be seen different from the bougie women we've seen. 
One of the working class responses I've seen, which I've been pretty interested in, is a group group of men within the DSA creating ways to hold each other accountable. Men holding men accountable for patriarchal violence is a novel idea and also can be problematic as well. Obviously, men aren't the only perpetrators of sexual violence and harassment, but they are the overwhelming majority. Someone I was talking with on Twitter mentioned they are building a curriculum for running a meeting for men to talk to each other about power and gender. Their suggestions for topics and activities include performative feminism versus the daily practice of feminism, radical consent training, active listening training, racism, rape, rape culture, acquaintance rape versus predatory rape, the issue of misogyny and security, the interplay of misogyny and homophobia and transphobia. And he wanted to have a lot of role-playing and open and honest conversations in those sorts of scenarios. And this has been somewhat controversial in practice, um, perhaps not surprisingly. It was initially, I think, conceived as a way to help uh, take some of the burden off of non-cisgendered men in the organization. But understandably, women and non-cisgendered men have wanted to be involved to varying degrees in planning and execution. Uh, The distrust runs very deep, I think. Um, So at the same time, Lots of people who'd want to weigh in are overextended because they're underrepresented in the organization, and then they're very busy organizing, doing all the house stuff, and just trying to exist in this nightmarish hellhole we're in all the time. Yeah, which is its own, like, just, that's it. That's all you can do sometimes. (laughs) Um, And then there's some sense of urgency in at least getting a conversation going because, you know, people have a sense that you need to get in front of the issue or we want to show that we're doing something and this is something that we care about. Mm -hmm. I think, I don't know if, Our listeners are familiar with the organization Surge showing up for racial justice, Mm -hmm. but it's based off of a similar idea where it's white people holding other white people accountable for white supremacy and racism. And in theory, it's a good idea in that it's, it comes from the awareness that there is emotional labor that is real, that comes from people who are marginalized and, They have to teach people essentially how to not marginalize them. And that can often be really exhausting. And so the idea behind things like Surge or this is that the people who are often the perpetrators of that marginalization or that violence hold each other accountable. But it becomes problematic because it is a self-segregated space. Mm -hmm. So there are no black people involved in the conversation of how white people should stand up to other white people. And when surge programs work the best, it's when the leadership of those organizations are in constant communication with the local Black Lives Matter movement Mm -hmm. um, and other organizations that are primarily focused on black existence. And so I could see something like this working really well as long as it worked with close partnership Mm -hmm. to a feminist group of women. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things that I've seen, and it's somewhat related in regards to transformative justice a lot, is the idea of community accountability. And so it's where we look at how sexism, racism, homophobia, 
etc. operates in our own communities and how it's upheld, whether this be in more subconscious or overt ways. And I also think it's important to recognize that justice and accountability will vary depending on the community, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm quoting from Insight now, but they say community accountability strategies will not work in all communities at all times. Each strategy must be evaluated within its community context and constantly be reevaluated for its effectiveness and fairness. And I think that's important too, is just there's not a one size fits all. And sometimes you grow out of a certain size. Totally. <laughs> Yeah. I'm wondering, and this is just maybe me not knowing, but would that, like, what you're describing to me is, like, this community accountability is, like, the perfect cross-section in my mind between anarchism and socialism, <laughs> like, which is where I live most of the time. <laughs> but I, I do feel like we're, it's it's not really a structure that is maybe overseen on a higher level It's just something that kind of organically happens, but it's also possibly democratic in nature or, you know, has accountability within that structure. I've been thinking about the the place of community in restorative justice a lot this week, Um, because I think like if we look at the celebrity issues that are coming to light now, there's a question around like, what is the community if it's a pop culture or a public figure? Is the community like the like in the case of um, Weinstein? Is it like the the Hollywood community, or is the general public then the community? And when you think about restorative justice, what's mm. what's owed to different different communities who may be affected? Totally. Yeah, yeah. I think that's such a a difficult question. Like, what what does community become when it's on such a like high level? Right. I guess. And with um, social media too, because we know that those are oftentimes really vibrant communities and sometimes people's only lifelines. So, you know, it might even extend into like social media groups or things like that. Right. Yeah. I was reading something where it was talking about like this idea of community accountability and how, what, what does that mean if the person or like the perpetrator of violence leaves that community only to perpetrate violence in a new community mm-hmm. and like how how do we interact with that and how what does accountability look like and it, I think it does vary but it's just there's no one easy answer <laughs> it's so hard yeah I think there's actually been something there's a weird pattern this is a maybe a little bit of a tangent I'm just realizing that this is a pattern and it kind of fits into this idea of community and using like transformative justice through community and where that the holes in that may be. Several times over the past few years, I've been in different activists and leftist groups in different areas of the country. And in each of those locations, it has come out that someone who was a powerful leftist used their leftism and like their prowess as a leftist to be a sexual predator towards people. Um, Like they used their leftism as like a way to like push people to have sex with them or, or whatever the context was. This happened in Portland and a really prominent person in that activist community was accused of of rape and uh, he ended up leaving. It happened in Ithaca 
and it's happened to a prominent person in the DSA as well. And I, I do wonder what that means when we are a, like, I feel like activist communities more often than not are the closest thing to what we're describing Mm -hmm. this like community holding holding each other responsible. And there's been like a myriad of ways that people have responded to this, right? Like people have ostracized um, the perpetrators, people have um, alienated them and like tried to get them incarcerated even on on one of the cases. And so I'm wondering what y'all's thoughts are on how in the left specifically when there's this specific type of manipulation that comes from people who use leftism to their advantage in this predatory way, how we as like people in the leftist community can hold them accountable while still trying to seek this transformative justice. And maybe that's an impossible question to answer. It's a really big question. Um, (laughs) I wonder to some extent, like if we change the, the culture of our communities so that it's easier for people to come forward with stories in a timely way and they feel more accepted and also sometimes having less dramatic repercussions possible may even make people more comfortable about coming forward that like that might help eventually make things better because it'll be more out in the open so people don't have the opportunity to do this so habitually then um, yeah. like it, it, it can't happen over and over again as easily if somebody's able to speak up at first and say that made me uncomfortable or that was too far. Yeah. And the, you know, cause you have the community, you have the perpetrator and then you have the victim. And I was thinking, I keep thinking about celebrity cases, I guess, cause they're more neutral, but like thinking about Al Franken and the, uh, one of the women or the fir- the only woman, maybe I'm not that up on it, um, you know, she accepted his apology. Uh, but I think the the community at large wasn't really ready, doesn't seem like to accept that apology or to move on from it. So like, I'm not sure what you do when the victim is like, okay, this is this, like, I'm satisfied with where this is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like, I don't know, it, it seems that we should be at the bot at the end of the day like listening to what the victim wants right and like that will change case by case but yeah i don't know like what what do you do when the community isn't satisfied with the route the victim wants to take right and i feel like i don't know why this is what imagery is coming to my mind but like that scene in beauty and the beast where like the whole (laughs) community has like their pitchforks and their like thing like that's kind of at least in portland that's essentially what happened is like people lost their goddamn minds Mm -hmm. and it's understandable why they lost their minds because if someone literally uses being an open accepting and loving person to their advantage to manipulate people. That's like obviously a really deep and intense problem. At the same time, we can't like, we just can't be pulling that shit. Like if we are to take transformative justice seriously, we can't pull out our pitchforks. Right. Yeah. So I guess it really starts with listening to people when they say that they've been made uncomfortable or that things Mm -hmm. have happened to them and really listening to how they're feeling, how it happened and trying to be, supportive Uh, to me that's the only thing I can think of to say about how we start making things transform yeah I've seen some I guess 
recommendations or ideas of forming support groups for both whoever was victimized, but also whoever perpetrated the crime Mm. and forming these kind of like mediatory groups around these people. And it's not supporting the act of whatever violence occurred, but it's it's just coming to a different kind of understanding of how we can heal if that's possible or yeah. what what's actions need to be taken and also understanding that sometimes like you can be both oppressor and oppressed mm-hmm. at different times and in different ways and like understanding that there are those dynamics at play also. Yeah, I can say personally for me in my past, I've been in abusive relationships where I didn't want to really tell anybody or get police involved because uh, if my partner's black, I don't want them to be part of that system. Mm. Um, And so like, you know, I, I would be horrified if somebody that I loved, if I told them and they took it upon themselves to like make it a campaign at the time, I would have just been like so upset about that right of course and I think it also comes to me with like the understanding that a lot of these perpetrations come from something deeper psychologically not always but often there's like either a history of abuse and trauma in their own life or um, there's maybe something larger going on and so understanding that they probably need actual professional help is important as well. So when we think about abuse and its effect on women, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about how that affects women in the carceral state as well. Yeah, um, I think it's important to talk about the fact uh, that we historically punish women who have been victims of sexual violence, uh, not only in general, like social avenues, whether it be not believing women when they Mm -hmm. come forward or creating an environment of silence around sexual violence, um, but also just within the carceral state. Like, I think it's something outrageous, like three-fourths or more of women who are are imprisoned suffered severe abuse at the hands of their partners in adulthood, and Mm. like over 80% suffered childhood sexual abuse. I think almost 90% of women who are imprisoned for murdering men killed those men who were abusing them. And they often face much longer sentences than men who have killed their partners. Yeah, that's some fucked up shit. Like, <laughs> like I can't even... That shit makes me so mad. I did not know any of this. And when, I, when we were kind of putting this episode together and I read that, I was like, what the actual fuck? Like, that has such large repercussions about the how this then gets amplified and reinforced in society yeah Mm -hmm. yeah like i think it's just another example of the fact that like mass mass criminalization and mass imprisonment is a gendered issue Mm. and it operates almost as a form of sexual violence and it's like sexual violence of the state onto the people you know Mm -hmm. there's i think i'm getting the title right there There's a book called Inside This Place, Not Of It, Mm. Um, and it's narrative, different narrative accounts of uh, women and who are imprisoned and just kind of a a history of how they got there, why, like their life stories. Um, That's really worth checking out. Um, 
<laughs> you could Google something like that. If it's not yeah. that, it'll probably come up. Yeah. <laughs> Just put a question mark at the end of all your Google searches. Yeah. Um, so uh, I also am wondering, like, how we were talking about, you know, the, these celebrity cases of assault and these men in power. I'm wondering if, like, maybe we have an opportunity with in our in smaller scale communities and within our own communities to really promote ideas of transformative justice, like we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just don't know if all of these abusive men who are in unreal positions of power, um, if like radical forms of justice will ever enter into the conversation of right. like the Weinsteins and the fucking like Woody Allens and whoever. Um, yeah. But we can start like grassroots up. But even like seeing the difference between them and Bill Cosby is like, is, I don't know. I feel like I feel how those two cases have been handled. It becomes really clear that there's a racial component as well. Oh, of course. For sure. And that, like, this whole system is, like, still doing the same old shit where, like, the way we criminalize certain old men who do the same fucking bullshit over and over again, including the goddamn president of the United States. Like, literally, the president of the United States was elected after, on record, we knew this shit was happening. Yeah, did you see he said that the tape was, like, made up? That it was doctored. Oh my it's God. like not I real. I can't even fucking can't even deal with that. That's not even a real thing. <sighs> yeah, I think I saw something that four out of the six, I'm pretty sure it was just Democratic Congress people or senators who have been asked to step down, who have all come forward or been accused of uh, sexual assault. But the, f- the four people who have been asked to step down are all black. I, th- I saw I saw something. I don't don't quote me on that. Um, I know Al Franken has been asked to step down, but I haven't heard anything else. Yeah, I can't. There was some like tw- meme Twitter bite thing, but I saw meme <laughs> Twitter bite thing. That sounds legit. Where's our yeah. fact checkers? <laughs> yes, yeah. it's it's super legit. Y'all don't need to fact check that. That's fine. <laughs> meme Twitters. Yeah. We consulted the meme Twitters. Meme Twitter's citation not needed. <laughs> this is why we can't think, have nice things. This is why nobody new wants to join our coven because we're so strict about this. Yeah, we're super, we're soups strict. Um, I think this is a good transition into how, if at all, if at all, um, how we can have potential ways for transformative justice or restorative justice for those right-wing fuck faces who run our government into the ground. Um, it's easy to think that we should just send them to the gulag, but if we are to think about abolishing the prison system seriously, like, how do we deal with these folks? How do we deal with these, like, people who are breaking the law left and right? And, like, not that I uphold the law to the highest extent. That's not the fucking point. But the point is, like, these fucking people are doing terrible things, like not just breaking the law, like just doing terrible things and they are in power. So what the fuck do we do? Um, (laughs) (laughs) just a simple question. What do we do with all these fuck faces? So I guess for me, typically my fantasies, uh, involving all of these pieces of shit verge on sadism, like (laughs) nightly sadistic fantasies of how I would, kill them all. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but they, so, so, 
Uh, so they all belong in the inner layers of Dante's Inferno. But I think that one of the hardest things is that we've been conditioned to see prisons as remedy, right? Mm. So, like, lock them up and throw away the key. It's, But it's also difficult because these dudes are the ones who have upheld and promoted these structures of oppression. And, like, part of me is just like, well, I want you to suffer under the fucked up system you create it and maintain. Yeah, it's like it's hard to not just think like I want you to suffer so intensely. And that's like some fucked up shit also to feel for a person. Yeah, so much rage. I think it's pretty it's a pretty human way to feel, but I think that's why ideally a justice system helps people not make decisions based on that just that desire alone, right? <laughs> Based on our own rage. Right. That's why any kind of a system where other people can like help things resolve, because it's a superhuman, not superhuman, that's, it's a normal human way to feel. <laughs> it's a superhuman. No, that is the worst <laughs> place to use super. It's a normal human way to feel. Yes. So really, I think what I, if I could do anything i mean i have a, i don't know I, I do have a lot of fantasies but um i would like to find rick moranis uh and see where that shrinking machine from honey i shrunk the kids is and then turn all the politicians <laughs> on the hill into ant-sized beings on like an ant hill um all the one percent too uh and then they could just go ahead and conduct their business as they want to yes i definitely support this idea but i just want to ask like what about all the other innocent bugs and what if these ants reproduce and find some way to screw over their new ant offspring i (laughs) i feel like though like we could like maybe contain them like in an ant farm yeah like that's like a I know, but then that I know that we're back to the yep, we're back to the prison thing. They're just tiny. But what if they don't know they're contained? Like it's like the Truman Show, but that doesn't. It's not a good example because he realizes he's contained. Right. But like, say it's like the Truman Show if he didn't realize he was contained, because <laughs> he was like a happy little dude and was like pumped about it. So like, it could be like that. Maybe well, they, I, maybe we can use like wall. virtual reality as a punishment. <laughs> yeah, that could work. Yeah, I had. I had this fantasy regarding uh, Mitch McConnell where, do you remember, like, the the crocodile arcade game where you, like, punched the yes. alligators on the head? It was just, like, you turned Mitch McConnell into one of those plastic alligators. And it's amazing. his life was, like, the rest of his eternity was spent in a Chuck E. Cheese's getting, like, hit on the head by kids. <laughs> That's amazing. I was trying to think of, like, person-specific things, too. Like, Michael Flynn being, like, a liar, which they're all liars. So, like, this isn't actually a unique and personable thing because he's actually coming forward, which maybe is, like, a more honorable thing than, like, half of the other people. Anyway, I'm not saying Michael Flynn is honorable. (laughs) But, like, like, I was thinking of, like, some fucking Harry Potter shit where there's that... (laughs) There's that, like, pen that when you start writing, it, like, takes blood out of the back of your hand. And it's like, I must not tell lies. And then it, like, etches that into the back of his hand. And even though that was fucked up in Harry Potter, maybe it would be a just thing in this situation. Because, like, we're not... Oh, my God. I can't even remember her name. That, like, psycho woman who did that to Harry Potter. We're, like, benevolent people who are, like, let's not send you to jail. Let's do this instead. Right. <laughs> 
take away all their fucking money. Yes. Redistribute the wealth with their money. Yes. Create a fucking socialist society on the backs of the men on Wall Street. Yes. Take away their power. I would like to take away all their money and then, like, make them take mushrooms or something. (laughs) (laughs) And just see what happens. Take away all their money, feed them acid, and then burn, like, their piles and piles of money in front of them. Yes! But But then give them, like, after, once they come back from that trip, give them, like, you know, a normal, modest house and, like, some normal food in the refrigerator. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, or make them live on in like a public TA housing stipend. Oh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's pretty good. Yo, we had a we had a whole episode on TA shit. Oh, it was some fucked up bullshit. Kristen's a TA; she knows it's yeah. bad. It's yep, awful. bad and potentially getting worse. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> thanks the tax plan. Oh I can't. Can't. I was. <laughs> I was also thinking maybe the most, like, just punishment of all the most, in the biblical sense, possibly. I don't know. I was never religious. I don't know. If this I feel like the biblical, anytime someone's ever been, like, in the biblical sense, they were talking about, like, having sex. <laughs> like, they were like, I knew them in the biblical sense. And I was like, okay. The Bible's, like, full of some fucked up punishment. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> um, but, yeah, like give them immortality uh, or something so they could just witness the inevitable destruction of the world and suffering that they played a part in forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Some of them already seem like vampires, to be honest. Oh, oh my God. God. I'm pretty... Well, Kristen and I have both watched a lot of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Mm-hmm. It's, it's almost 100% positive that, that they are all vampires, actually. Yeah. We just don't know yet. Yeah. But not Trump. Trump's like, Trump would be like the mayor from, if any of you are Buffy people, he would be like the mayor. No, he's not as cool as yeah, the mayor. That's the mayor giving him like too so much, much more charming. Yeah. Okay, never mind. Fuck that. Okay. <clears throat> My other idea is to put them in a sort of summer camp scenario where they all have to deal with one another. They aren't allowed to leave, which has a containment factor, I know, but... Mm, <laughs> That's fine. They have no power, but there are really no other restrictions other than that. They would just have to deal with each other like actual human beings in a scenario where capitalism doesn't give them a leg up in the world. And then my other idea is just to give them all really good therapists, like people who could get them through their shit that makes them feel like they can ruin people's fucking lives and the planet and everything for everyone and trample people and prey on the weak. Like that is some fucked up psychosis. No judgment and mental illness, but I actually don't believe humans are hardwired to fuck one another over. Capitalism incentivizes that, but I also think that they have like some psychosis built in with capitalism. Um, so maybe we just put them in therapy every day for like 10 years and see what happens. Maybe socialism. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I saw it. <laughs> I think, do you two listen to Two Dope Queens ever? Yes. yes. Um, I'm pretty sure, I think it was Phoebe Robinson was saying, like, if you're a white man and you're not in therapy, like, I don't fuck with you. Like, you are not a trustworthy <laughs> person. <laughs> get in therapy people yo i see a therapist it's so dope it's the best ever (laughs) everyone should because those people are amazing and like therapists have therapists 
It's all on some meta shit. Yeah, but I feel like with, like, Trump, you know, don't therapists have some clause where they have to let people know if you're a danger to yourself or others? <laughs> so I feel like that would be a short relationship before the therapist is like, this is very dangerous. <laughs> right. Yeah, maybe with Trump, we could just, like, feed him Big Macs and fish fillets mm. until he, like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. literally uh, bursts. <laughs> That's disgusting. <laughs> so disgusting. Did you read that? Did you see that thing where like someone? I think it was a uh, Corey Lewandowski published some like tell-all, and he's just like Trump's favorite meal. Like his fucking favorite meal is two Big Macs, two fish fillets, and a chocolate milkshake from. Ah, uh, the fish fillets are so disgusting too. I They're know. like the worst fast food item. Anywhere, ever. Oh, my God. Oh, I just thought of this, though. Everyone remembers that, like, Time magazine article where he had the eagle, and then there was, like, the video that was, like, him with the eagle, and the eagle was, like, trying to fuck him up. (laughs) Just leave him in a room with that eagle. It's totally chill. Oh, my gosh. I also feel like when, I think I already said this before, but like when bad shit keeps happening specifically within the government, my staunch belief in the power of democracy, not that the U.S. is a democracy, it's not, but I just like don't believe in the power of people more generally. I don't know. So I just feel like I believe in cooperative power of people to do good, but also like I believe in their ability to be corrupted by power and corrupted by knowledge that can contain power. So how do we have a situation where people don't have power because power is, like, so evil? I don't know. IDK. 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 Well, I think we're going to start wrapping up. Cool. Um, I also just wanted to mention uh, that this weekend marks the one-year anniversary of the ghost ship fire in Oakland. So just sending our love and thoughts to our friends and comrades out there. Yeah. Do you want to explain for people who may not know what that was? So ghost ship was an art space and warehouse in Oakland. Um, and last year during a show, there was a large fire and I think it was 36 people who died in the fire. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And since then, um, a lot of art spaces have been closing and there's really been a crackdown on, I guess, quote unquote, illegal, illegally run art spaces under the guise of safety. Right. And it's important, like, not only because it's a tragedy and we should like, remember that and, like, keep those people in our thoughts and the people who are um, unbelievably still affected by that in Oakland in our thoughts, but be aware that these spaces, which are cooperative spaces and are spaces where community and people who are marginalized, particularly in the trans community and other marginalized folks can come together and feel safe and they're really precarious spaces for the most part. Like often they're in old warehouses and things like that. And so it's just another, another front to, to fight that sort of oppression. 
because it is like it's a precariousness that is very specific but is real and also like everyone should be able to share their art in a space that they feel safe whether that's emotionally safe or physically safe in the building as well so not to awkwardly shift that but there's really no graceful way to do that we're gonna be back next week and every week we may have a special episode on the tax bill that we put out um that's just gonna be us like going through it piece by piece and fucking it up but catch us on twitter and instagram and facebook we're at season of the bee and we have merch we have new merch well we have more sizes right hope cool so we have small through triple xl Awesome. And we have blogs. Um, There's a blog up now that is a book review of Rebecca Solnit's Men Explain Things to Me. And we have a shit ton of episodes that if y'all haven't listened to, you better do that now. Yeah. And also you can review us on iTunes, which is super nice. We love that. Occasionally, if they're really funny, we'll retweet the funny reviews that you leave us. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, also, we are planning more live shows in more places, so stay tuned for details. Yes. Yay. Oh, also, if you are a non-man, non-cis man musician, send us your music at Season of the Bee because we're running low on that community music sitch, and we love to hear from y'all. Send us your tunes. Send us your tunes. <laughs> okay. Love you guys. Bye. (laughs) See you